Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast, where we address topics relevant to today's consumers and farmers. I'm Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Preston and I are technology development reps, or TDRs, for Bear Crop Science. As TDRs, our primary mission is to help solve agronomic challenges that farmers face and to understand how to best utilize the bear suite of products, including traits, genetics, crop protection, as well as digital tools, to create solutions that are tailored to each grower's unique farm. We have a couple goals with this podcast, the first being to help farmers across the country to address challenges that they face throughout the growing season while introducing them to game-changing technology that has the potential to radically benefit their farming practices. We also want to provide the consumers of ag commodities who are not necessarily involved in agriculture with information about the practices farmers engage in and the reasons behind them, hopefully provide a greater level of understanding and comfort with how their food is produced. Today's episode is part two of our podcast series on the history of plant breeding. Retired soybean breeder Tom Floyd is once again our guest. Well, Tom, welcome back to the podcast. You're our first uh, two-episode guest here, so that's a real milestone, I guess. So we spent our last episode talking quite a bit about the history of plant breeding, and we talked about the advances that have been made and you know how we got to the point of the modern day. Speaking of kind of the molecular techniques and some of the advancements that came in the 70s and the 80s. So we'd like to take this discussion to the next uh, point here. So what we talked about in the past was the traditional breeding techniques. So now let's talk about those modern techniques. So, you know, that kind of starts with the development of molecular markers in the late 70s and early 80s that kind of built on some of that earlier, those earlier discoveries that you had talked about, about how we understood DNA. So just at a basic level, let's start in with what are we talking about when we talk about a molecular marker? Well, a marker is a, a, it's, it's a string of, of nucleic acid. It's, it's part of the segment of DNA. And these markers are either near uh, a desired gene or sometimes they're even in the gene. And we're able to, I, I always called it magic. It's just, it's just incredible to me because I, I didn't grow up learning any of this stuff. And when I found out that it could be done, it, it just, it's like, this, this is, this is just crazy. You know, that's how I feel about computers. Yeah. They're magic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I was just fascinated by this, you know, and, and having been a plant breeder for quite a number of years that, uh, uh, to find out that we could actually see these things uh, molecularly that we were just seeing expressed out in the field. It, it, it was just incredible technology. So. so there's a couple of terms that we throw around in the breeding world that um, maybe a lot of people have learned it at some point in their life, but maybe, you know, don't think about it from day to day, but we talk about genotype and phenotype, and you kind of touched on it just briefly there a little bit, but can you expand on what those terms are and how they are related to each other. Well, well, phenotype is actually the, the, the physical expression of a particular trait and can, you know, whatever trait, say, say flower color. And I worked in soybeans and we had white and purple flowers. So the phenotype would be white or purple. Uh, the genotype is actually the set of genes in the DNA that are responsible for that trait. So we would be able to see the uh, coding for that particular 
uh, genotype. So yeah, expressed in a molecular term. So one's what you actually see, and the other's what causes it to be. So basically, early in your career, you would have gone out and you would have had to look at how the plant looked in the field before you could make a selection. But these markers allowed us to look at the DNA, and you could even make a decision before you saw how the plant uh, appeared in the field. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, for many years, if we wanted to, we were selecting for uh, phytophthora root rot resistance, which is common for people in their gardens uh, to have phytophthora. It, it attacks a lot of garden plants. Well, it attacks soybeans too. And to do that, uh, to select for resistance, we would have to we grow plants out and, and actually infect them with the fungus and see if they lived or died. And that was a tedious process. We'd do hundreds of thousands of plants just to find you know, the, the few that survived and, and hopefully yielded well. Uh, with molecular markers, we were able to find that same resistance. And we actually got to the point where we could do it, you know, you could do it with just a, a piece of tissue from the leaf that's probably the size of your small fingernail, your little fingernail or even a tiny, what we call a chip, off of a seed. Just take a little bit of a seed off, and we were able to extract the DNA from that. And the seed would still be viable, and we could, we could tell which of those seeds would be resistant, which ones would not. It, was, it saved so much time and increased our, our chances of success tremendously. Well, that's a huge step change from growing out all those plants in the field. And then, you know, you talk about inoculating for diseases and things like that, sometimes in the green hill, greenhouse, maybe even the field. Um, but a lot of times that technique um, is less than perfect as far as uh, success rates and the inoculation and things like that. So this is a big change to be able to look at the DNA and know for sure if that gene for resistance was there or not. Well, early early on, one of the first markers that we we worked with had to do with a a little resistance to a small nematode that occurs in the the soil. And as you said, we used to have to grow out varieties out in the field, and we grow thousands of varieties out in the field, and we pull up a few of the plants of a variety and look to see if the the nematode was actually present and Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. The ones that were, had, had the nematode, we would actually, you know, throw those away. Those are susceptible. And then some that didn't have it, well, they weren't necessarily resistant. They might just be what we call escapes. Uh, the variability out in the field, the, the nematode isn't just everywhere in the field. It's in certain spots and, it, you know, it's, you can't see it. So you'd have a lot of error and you move forward material that was susceptible that you thought this may be resistant based on what you'd seen in the field, markers eliminated that. Uh, we got to the point where it was, it was you know, 90, 90 some percent accurate. It was where we were probably, <laughs> probably just in the you know, 30, 40 percent accurate before that at, at, at best. It, it just doubled, more than doubled our accuracy. Yeah. And the time frame, it just, it made it so we didn't have, like you said, we didn't even have to grow the plants 
in the field or even the greenhouse. We could just we could just do it with just a a, a piece of the, of the seed. Tremendous. It's incredible, and and you were looking at uh, a lot of times in, in those cases. I mean, it was a huge improvement, but you were looking at single uh, genes of interest at that point. Um, and as this technology continued to develop and improve, as it has over the last forty or so years. Uh, we have gotten to the point where we are now able to sequence uh, not just the genome of an organism, but individual plants. So I think when the Human Genome Project was hashed and created, um, I think they estimated, um, and you can correct me on this, Tom, because you might know the, the numbers a little better than I am, but I think they expected it to take about 10 years, and it ended up being coming in under time, and maybe it took six or seven years. It was quite a bit faster than they expected, but... Um, we're to the point today where we can genome into, or I'm sorry, the point today where we can sequence individual plants in a matter of hours or days. Yeah, that's it's. I I think it was even more than that, uh, Jason. I think the the initial thoughts on the human genome project were <laughs> maybe on the order of twenty years or okay. something like. That. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I know it, it was a it, long it, time. It, it it was a long time. You're you're right. It was a long time, and but the technology developed tremendously during that time, and there were some, a lot of innovative people. Uh, had some really good ideas how to how to get there quicker. But since that time, uh, you know that technology has now been you know applied to, to plants, and as you said, we 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 can do it. <laughs> so quickly now it it's just it's just amazing and you know you where you talk about doing a sequence of a, an individual person we know we now do that on 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 plants it's, it's just it's just crazy and and it's so much cheaper and done in such a short short amount of time and that's enabled a whole new level of uh you know what you know what's called you know genomics looking at the whole genome of a plant and and uh, uh, being able to s select for plants that are probably you know, have a higher probability of being uh, desirable and we can do that on a molecular basis versus just growing them out and testing them for yield uh, we can pre-screen them with m molecular markers it's 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 really really uh, game-changing yeah, we're able to do, as you mentioned earlier, to do that with the chipping technology where we can take a piece from the seed and we can basically make a prediction on not only what uh, traits it will have, but also how it will perform uh, as far as yield. Yeah, we initially started with, as you said, we, we were looking at one single trait. And then we were doing selection for multiple traits. And then we we're incorporating them with multiple traits we're doing markers that are strung out across the whole genome and because of the laws of inheritance we know how things are linked together and passed on from generation to generation and we can we can use those those markers to to map out higher yielding areas of the genome areas that contribute to to yield and standability and protein, oil, uh, you know, all sorts of quality traits. And we could drive that to uh, 
produce you know better varieties much more quickly. There's a popular term in the lexicon, GMOs. Uh, maybe it's more nefarious in some groups than popular, but uh, I was wondering if you could describe what is actually a GMO, and then more importantly, how were they created in the early stages? GMO is a genetically modified organism. Uh, the work I, I did, the plant material was genetic material and soybeans had been altered using genetic engineering techniques. And this can be done different ways, uh, but the final result is a plant that has a beneficial gene that didn't occur naturally through natural recombination or you know through mating. Our breeding program, we work with transgenes or incorporated a desirable trait from another organism, or it's actually a, a bacteria, into the soybean genome where it, its action was able to be expressed by the soybean plant. So you ask about early on, one of the early techniques was kind of fascinating. It was a gene gun, and the gene gun actually used a 22 caliber charge. It wasn't really a bullet, but just a charge. And below it was a some callus tissue, uh, which is just basically undifferentiated plant material and the species that you're working on. In my case, it was soybeans. And in between it and the charge, you would place a little a screen with, uh, it would be like heavy metal, like gold or tungsten, very, very fine filaments of this, really, really small, almost almost microscopic. And and those would be coated with the gene, you know, a solution containing the gene of interest. They'd be just kind of soaked on that. And then with the gene gun, it actually set off the charge and it would fire those heavy metals, I say gold or tungsten, into that callous tissue. And then hopefully something would actually be embedded in the nucleus and then the DNA of some of those cells. And so usually it wasn't, but sometimes it was. And you could grow those plants, grow that callus tissue, put it on a, a media that would actually allow the small plantlet to grow. And they, they would get those plantlets, uh, nurse them along and, uh, and we eventually do some selection amongst those and, and get the thing to survive. And uh, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty fascinating time. It's amazing. It sounds, you know, it, talking about it, it sounds so crude. And it, it's just barely a step up from the uh, mutagenesis that we talked about in the previous episode. But we obviously continue to fine-tune the technique. And we landed on a technique that's much uh, less crude. And can you talk about that well along the way there's a stepping stone it's probably electroporation that was one that was used where they try to actually electrify the the, the cells and, and give them a small charge which opens up the pores and would allow the the dna to uh the gene of interest to to move into the uh nucleus uh, you know, our company ex experimented with that for a while, and uh, that that was that was kind of interesting. But again, 
as you said, it, it was just a step along the way and was quickly replaced by, uh, you know, using agrobacterium, which is a, actually a naturally occurring uh, virus and you use a basically a deactivated type of, of virus and viruses are able to actually inject their own, their own DNA into a, a target organism. And so they use that ability of that agrobacterium to be able to insert the, the DNA that we're interested in into the agrobacterium where it would actually place it into the, the DNA of soybean or corn or whatever plant we wanted it to be in. And it's, it was done much more smoothly and, and uh, not, not the crude firing a 22 caliber shell at the thing. So. <laughs> yeah. The shotgun approach as opposed to the uh, yes. <laughs> sniper approach, I guess. Yes. It's interesting. Um, basically, what they eventually landed on was a fairly natural process. They took, took advantage of this microorganism to kind of do the job. Um, and in fact, I've read recently, and we've talked about this on a couple other episodes too, but they're starting to find that this has happened in food crops in nature in the past. The first one I read about was sweet potatoes, where they believe agrobacterium put a gene into a sweet potato plant that made the sweet potato bigger. And, you know, humans saved that, as we talked about very early on, and just, hey, this is a nice big uh sweet potato this is mm-hmm. a little better than those small ones but really the the same process occurred naturally uh, as we're doing today yeah it's it's a fa- fairly fairly natural process that we've just been able to take advantage of so it's pretty cool science so shifting gears a little bit um you were one of the developers of some of the early roundup ready soybean varieties um so this was one of the first commercially successful biotech products available on the market. Did you understand at the time how important this technology would be? I, I had no idea. We knew it was, it was highly significant because we were, we were looking with, with whole new technology, but the particular trait that we were working with I, I thought it might be of, of interest in certain parts of the country. You know, it might, would have some value there, but I really had no clue that it would be end up being on, I believe, ninety six percent of the acreage in the United States. <laughs> I, I, I didn't see that coming. I, I, I'm quite honest. I didn't, did not see that. Coming. That would be pretty hard to predict. I mean, that was. No a huge game changer for, for farmers across the country and across the world, really. And, and especially when we see some of the um, benefits of GMO, GM crops. I mean, again, I referenced our, you know, our episode with Dr. Stuart Smythe, where he talked about the, the benefits that is brought not only to, to farmers, but also to consumers. And we can follow a little bit about what's going on in Asia with the golden rice. And hopefully that'll get approved soon because it has some real health benefits for uh, mm-hmm. the people that don't, you know, are somewhat malnourished. In addition to how important the technology would be just from an overall footprint perspective, from a sustainability perspective, did you have any thoughts around sustainability at the early development of this technology? So Roundup Ready Soybean Varieties, 
uh, allowing, making it easier for farmers to be able to reduce tillage, things like that. It's really, you know, allowed farmers today to be able to incorporate more sustainable minded approaches to farming. I, I'm just curious for my own personal interest, if you <laughs> had any inclination of that. Well, that, that I, I did. I thought that was going to be one of the, the big selling points for, for farmers as well as for even for the public at, at, at large, that we'd be able to, we're using less fuel because we're spending less on, on tillage, uh, running through the fields, don't have to go through there near as often. We're not, we're not breaking up the uh, soil, so we're not having as much erosion. And with, with less erosion, which is good for the you know, long-term sustainability of our, our soil because it, it takes a lot of years to build, uh, you know, an inch of topsoil. Uh, but on top of that, that soil goes someplace uh, when we when it erodes and that reduces our, our water quality. It also takes with it not just the sediments, but it takes, you know, nutrients away with it. In some cases, pesticides. Uh, so it's all of that staying in one place now. I, I, I always thought that was going to be a, a, a a huge selling point, and I think it, it's been a really good thing for for the environment. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and this is a message that I think doesn't get out uh, enough, and really a lot of growers have, and a lot of sources are really starting to get this message out, but that's a huge impact of biotech crops is the sustainability piece that people have traditionally overlooked, I believe. Well, in the case of <clears throat> BT, the the BT genes have been incorporated into the corn and soybeans and, and uh, in, in South America and then in cotton in the U.S. We put on so much less insecticide. I mean, I think in the case of in South America and soybeans, it may be, they may be using one-seventh the insecticide. I may not have that number right, but it, it's something like that. And, and cotton was very similar here in the U.S., just using so much less and corn uh, it, it was a big factor behind the, uh, the tremendous increases we've seen in, in corn yields that, and we're using less chemicals to produce that so yeah it's all very sustainable yeah, yeah that's very true very true so we're uh, we want to be aware of your time and you've been very generous so far with it uh, so i wanted in conclusion to ask one more two-part question, so two more questions. Uh, with your history as a, as a soybean breeder, I mean, in central Illinois, our, our bean yields for the past five-year average have been, you know, phenomenal. 80, maybe 90 bushel beans in some parts of, of the state are not uncommon. Um, just looking into the future, have we maximized, have we maxed out the genetic potential of soybean varieties when it comes to yield? And the second part of that question is, is, is that what, is there any other ag related technology that that's exciting to you when you think about the, the future of, of producing food? No, I, I, I don't see the, uh, the, the, the end of yield. Uh, uh, I could go into some, some data that would suggest that from, uh, some scientists and, and the worked on this extensively, uh, university of Illinois has done some long-term work on, uh, on corn on the high oil project and no matter how long they go they just keep driving oil higher well i th i think we'll we'll continue to see that 
in, in soybeans. Maybe not at the uh, raw pace that uh, corn has done, but I think we'll continue to see soybean soybean yields increase. I think the biggest thing we we did during my my career was we we increased the top end uh, some you know somewhat. We're seeing a lot higher yields, but we also eliminated the bottom end. We don't see the the total wipeouts that you used to see 40 years ago, or with diseases that would uh, you'd have near crop failure at some times. We don't we don't see that. So, uh, but I, I I think we'll continue to uh, make steps forward in yield. Just one interjection before you go to the second part of the question, Tom. I think that any grower who's pulled a bean plant off the end of his field, you know, the corner somewhere where it's got a little extra light and a little extra nutrients and a little more space, uh, can see that <laughs> we're not taking advantage of the the uh, full potential of a soybean plant across the entire field. Exactly, exactly. But it's like you know, breeding is just just part of that that picture. It's it's you know the agronomics and and uh, uh, the the planter technology, the harvesting technology, all all, all those things go go together to to not only uh, you know increase yield but preserve that yield. Absolutely. Uh, but as far as you know, the the future, you know, I don't I don't see it as being any any one technology. Uh, from a breeding standpoint, the newest cutting-edge technology that's you know all the rage and very exciting is uh, is CRISPR, and I'm I'm not going to pretend to go go in and really explain CRISPR, but you know it's able to you're able to cut DNA at very specific places. It's even you know it's it's you're using the the plant's own DNA to make some beneficial changes. That's very exciting, but I think it's going to be even more than that. I think it's it's a combination of that technology, this CRISPR technology, combined with regular use of molecular markers, something we really didn't talk too much about. It's called genome-wide selection. I was just getting into that in uh, 20 teens. So just in the last 10 years or so, we've really been, be, begun doing genome-wide selection, uh, looking at whole you know, the whole genome and selecting for yield, genomics, remote sensing, advanced statistical analysis, mapping of the fields, and you know, and pulling in weather data. I think that's those are things that are all happening. That if if we incorporate all those things together, I think we'll we'll continue to see you know yields go up and uh, you know plants be healthier. The future of agriculture looks very bright. Yes, I, I, I would agree. Well, Tom, thank you for uh, taking part in this two-part series where you've discussed uh, the whole the history of, of plant breeding up until the, the current day. Uh, we appreciate your time, and it's it's been a pleasure. Well, thank, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.